Another head-spinning week uh, wrapping up uh, in what is now the slate of ticket of candidates that we know going into the November election, barring anything spectacular happening here to break down what happened this week. Jason Matthews and myself, Tyler Axenis. Uh, and Jason, I, I know that a lot of the spotlight's been on uh, the, the vice presidential selection, but I am absolutely furious, as I hope many people listening to this are, about what the president and his enablers out in Congress are allowing to happen to the U.S. Post Office. Uh, the, the president came out and just said it straight up. Look, they don't get the money. They can't do the mail-in voting. But this uh, arrogance uh, and this concern strictly on voting in 2020 uh, neglects to mention that, you know what, grandma and grandpa out in rural North Dakota rely on the post service for one social security checks or two prescription medications to be delivered on time. All that's being tinkered with right now because of a scared president in the White House and people that don't say a damn word like John Hoven in North Dakota. Um, you, you talk a little bit about how important the post office has been for, I don't know, decades upon decades. Give us the latest on that. You, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more um, iconic and beloved institution in America than the post office. Ben Franklin was the first postmaster. The framers thought so much of the post office that they put it in the Constitution as an enumerated power. And what has happened here is the president has put in a major donor who's contributed $400,000 to Republicans within the last uh, few years uh, in charge of the post office, who has stock in three major competitors of the Postal Service, UPS being one of them. And he is systematically dismantling the Postal Service three months before an election where it is estimated that 80 million people are going to cast votes by mail. Uh, and it is... This strategy is brilliant in its simplicity, in its ruthless, in its execution, and it is thoroughly authoritarian. You know, we've become numb to this circus that's been the last four years. And over time, we just see, well, what did he do now? What, what's the latest? Oh, you know, what's next? This is the five alarm fire here. Back in 2018, I taught a class for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute on what the hell is happening, which of course was the genesis of this whole series, what the hell is happening this week or what the hell happened this week. Mm -hmm. And when you study the collapse of democracies, they collapse in four steps. The first step is there's a crisis and whether that is a real crisis or an imagined crisis, but a leader's steps forward and uh, voters back this charismatic leader. And this charismatic leader typically promises that only he can save them. And then the leader finds his enemies. Uh, it can be criminals. It can be elites, uh, immigrants, criminals, elites, and immigrants are the usual targets. H.L. Um, Mencken famously said that the aim of, of any would-be despot is to keep the populace alarmed by an endless series, series of hooligans, and almost all of them are imaginary. Um, then the next step, or in, in that second step, the next, the next natural outgrowth is that the, the leader um, brings forward an agenda that is typically rooted in culture, in nostalgia. And, um, and that uh, plays to grievance politics. Then you get into step three. And step three is where the leader attacks the institutions that get in his way. The press, the judiciary, law enforcement, the military. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the fourth step. 
the leader changes the rules to make it harder for the voters to dislodge him. And when you study the collapse of democracies, by the time you get to the fourth step, it is extremely difficult to turn back. So if you're listening to this and you're saying where they're hyperventilating, this is hyperbolic, this can't happen to America, I'm telling you right now, whether you're Democrat, Independent, Republican, it's happening before your eyes. Wake up. Oh, well, and and to that point, that that shouldn't be a partisan thing. That's what pisses me off. Absolutely not. More right now is, is the fact that, and I'm going to keep going back to John Hoven. John, I know you got staff listening, Senator Hoven. Uh, you know, to, to have roundtables, for example, saying, "Well, look, I understand that we're from a rural state. The United States Postal Service has never been a partisan issue. It has become now, much like our our public health debates, become partisan for whatever reason because people just allow it to be." Those that know better just kind of step aside, but all right, well, you know, let them just get by. I don't want to stand up and say anything. Uh, but when it comes to the post service in North Dakota, I, I mean, what Jason, your you know, small towns, what do they have? They have a church, they have at least one bar, and they've got a post, you know, a post office mm-hmm. in town. I mean, that, that's a, the encompassing of our small town across the country. And one of those is being attacked right now. And to have these roundtables to discuss. Uh, well, if anything's going on as far as uh, delay, contact my office to have a, a page on a website as John Hoven does. You can go to you know Hoven's Senate page uh, under the drop down menu. It's postal concerns. Let me know about them. I'll try my best to do something. Apparently, those concerns aren't responded to when it's about the president attacking the very institution that is the post office. We see people like John Hoven, Kevin Kramer, Kelly Armstrong. I mean, just pick any. It's going to sound like I'm picking on Republicans because right now they're the ones that are just enabling this to go on without uttering a word. And like you said, we're watching this happen before our very eyes. And it's maddening to know that we have people, even in North Dakota, even in office, that know better that say things to each other behind cameras when the microphones are off there are too chicken to do anything when it really matters the most. Tribalism is a hell of a drug and it's time for detox. <laughs> I mean, that's, it, it, it's, it's acceptable. It's acceptable now because it's, it's my side. My side's doing it. Um, you know, take a look. This has been a bad week for democracy in America. Uh, you know, when the Titanic was going down, the orchestra assembled on the deck and they played nearer my God to thee as the ship went down. I'm getting serious nearer my God to thee vibes this week. You go back to Saturday, the president signs these executive orders on coronavirus relief. Um, none of which are constitutional. Um, they were for show. But all of a sudden, there's absolute silence from the Republicans on it. And, and also, the Democrats are chicken shit on this. Because because the Democrats now, they look at, they know this is blatantly unconstitutional. And they're sitting there and they're saying, you know, but the politics are good for us because he's cutting Social Security. So we're going to play the Social Security card like Democrats typically do, rather than the larger card here, which is constitutional. They say, well, if we go into the courts, I heard one Democratic strategist say this this week. If I go into, if the Democrats go into the courts and they challenge us, then it's going to look like they're holding up, they're holding up coronavirus aid. They're, they're playing into the president's hand. Look, the Constitution's on the line here. The Congress has already surrendered its powers of war making. I mean, we're recording this on the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, the, when Japan surrendered. 
the the greatest moment in the history of America when you think about it. We were at our apex then. Um, as 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 one person noted this week, after World War II, we then decided to put man on the moon, and when that was all over with, we decided to smoke a cigarette and put our feet up, and we haven't done a damn thing since. You know, the where we're at right now uh, is is the Congress has the power of the purse. The Constitution is absolutely crystal clear. If the Congress surrenders the power of the purse, having already given up its war-making powers, it is a paper tiger. And, and, the, and, the, and we don't have a president anymore. We have a king. And, and the only people that have spoken up on this matter from the Republicans have been Mitt Romney, yet again a voice in the wilderness, Justin Amash, who is the libertarian uh, conservative from Michigan, who's left the Republican Party, is not running for re-election. And finally, Rand Paul, who, who stood up on this. Other than that, there's absolute silence here. Mm-hmm. Then that happens on Saturday. On Sunday, the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, Bill Barr, the attorney general, goes on to Fox News' uh, Mark Levin show, who is a firebrand right-wing television presenter. Don't get me started on Mark Levin. Mark Levin, he goes on there and he is talking about, I mean, Bill Barr is not attorney general. He's, 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 you know, an interior minister. He is talking about the Democrats and he's framing everything in terms of this is a civil war Mm -hmm. that they have to use everything at their disposal to save the Republic folks. To quote Joe Biden here, folks, here's the deal. Uh, we're beyond slippery slope stage. I say this, I've said this before. We're beyond slippery slope stage. We are on now the downhill incline and we're picking up the pace here. And, and you know, don't take my word for it. Just this morning, Friday morning, the former head of the um, government ethics office comes out and he says on Twitter, and he said it, it I'll quote, it's Walter Schaub, um, the former director of the Office of Government Ethics. He mm-hmm. says, my sincere belief is that it's far worse than you think and will get worse than most can imagine. I pray I'm wrong, but the next several months will determine the fate of the world. And you have the privilege of deciding the fate with your actions. You won't get a second chance. Yeah, you know, and the whole uh, being uh, you know hyperbolic and you know, hyperbolic and uh, you know this uh, hyperventilating, you know, and let's take a step back here because the signs have been uh, that these individuals in Congress are going to allow this to be enabled, and I'm talking even before impeachment, where you know Susan, Collins, I think he learned his lesson well, really. Senator Diddy, uh, you know, be, but take it a step be back further to the declaration of a national emergency in which the president unilaterally took money approved and appropriated exactly. from Congress yep. through the Department of Defense and then put it to a border wall. And nobody said a word on the Republican side, at least in the Senate. And I was saying at that point in my radio show on KFGO, imagine the next Democratic president saying, you know what, we got a national emergency that's got to do with health care and unilaterally creates a a, a single payer system. You guys would be up in arms right now, but when it comes to this, you're you're uh, enabling it, and, and it's that that was the slippery. So that was the beginning for mm-hmm. me uh, of the the red uh, you know flags being uh, woven, and uh, now here we are, you know, just months from an election, and like you say, it's accelerating the the concerns. 
Well, this goes to this goes to um, a larger issue um, here, and that is that the president is weaponizing the federal bureaucracy. Uh, Ron Brownstein with the Atlantic this morning has a. Uh, well, let me just put it this way. Um, read it after you've had a stiff drink, because it is alarming. Um, the article that he has out there is laying out what has happened to the federal bureaucracy. We've never had a president that has weaponized the federal bureaucracy to the extent of Donald Trump. The, the, the federal bureaucracy is turning into is an extension of his campaign. Um, it goes beyond Bill Barr at the Justice Department. It goes to the politicization of the Homeland Security Office. It goes to the removal of these inspectors general. It goes to this week uh, ending the census. That's the other thing, too. We were ending the census a month early. Oh. We're doing an undercount. The undercount is, of course, going to impact disproportionately um, people of color. It's also going to impact rural America. Of course and what is. is so alarming here, what is so alarming here is that the states that are going to be most impacted by an undercount are Texas and Florida, just for an example. And nobody in the Republican Party in those states is saying a damn thing. They're not only going to lose the possibility of additional seats in the House of Representatives when you get into apportionment, they're going to lose federal funds. Again, tribalism is a hell of yeah. a drug. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's maddening to see on the ground. I mean, I saw from uh, the North Dakota, uh, you know, the Department of Commerce has been spearheading. I think they've done a good job of trying yeah, they to They have. Sure, they really you know, have. Uh, so people on the ground get it. You know, and by all means, Republican Governor Doug Burgum, he's been out in forefront. Hey, fill up the census because it's mm -hmm. you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars per person that we would get in federal aid. So please do this. And then as you're pointing out, hey, let's, let's wrap it up sooner, uh, boys, you know, uh, gather, gather as much as you can now, but you know, we're not going to extend anything coming from that same federal government and not a peep. It's well, just... <laughs> Tyler, the, there's been a trend here. Um, uh, and that is that the Republican party uh, nationally has given up on persuasion. Mm -hmm. uh, the Republican Party has won the popular vote in the presidential elections twice since 1988. They won it in 1988 with George H.W. Bush and then in 2004 with George W. Bush. Other than that, the Republican Party has averaged 46, 45, 46 percent of the popular vote in all of the presidential elections. Now, your listeners are going to come back and say, well, yeah, but Bill Clinton didn't win, the po didn't win a majority of the popular vote. And you're right, because it was a three-ray races in both 92 and, and 96. But, but the fact here is that what is alarming is that in um, you know, 1972, uh, Richard Nixon won over 20% of the African-American vote. Um, you had voices in the Republican Party like Jack, Jack Kemp, God rest his soul. You know, you, you might not agree with Jack Kemp when, when he was talking about supplies at economics, what have you. You always had to respect Jack Kemp for the sincerity uh, in which he believed uh, in equality for all and in making the Republican Party the party of Lincoln, the party that welcomes everybody. We haven't had a Republican on the scene since Jack Kemp left that is making a direct overture to the African-American community. What's happened is the parties have now realigned. 
and they've realigned on the racial lines. So the Republican Party, not our college educated, or excuse me, uh, white voters, particularly non-college educated white voters, many of them living disproportionately in rural America, mm-hmm. and then Democrats, um, you know, college educated, uh, multiracial uh, uh, citizens living, you know, disproportionately on the coast. And what's happening is the Republican Party is a minority party right now. They're not making the the efforts to go out there and attract new voters. They've stopped persuasion they just simply double down on going on to fox news okay and what's what's happening is um the this way the system is designed with the electoral college and with the senate disproportionately helps them but history tells us this history tells us this that you cannot have a country or a society that is minority political part political minority dominated until there's a revolution until violence breaks out, until something gives. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's the hand they're playing right now. The Democrats, I mean, let, let's just be equal opportunity here, too. I mean, I don't mean... Oh, yeah, I would say let, let's, uh, let's dish on uh, the National Democratic Party, shall we? <laughs> well, they don't, they, don't, they don't care. They don't care about this part of America. No, they, they don't. They, they just don't. And they prove They just that. don't. And they look, and, and let's be honest about it, there are many in the National Democratic Party that just simply look down on this part of the country as flyover country. Yeah. You know, I mean, we talk about Heidi Heitkamp. You 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 know Heidi very well. Tessa Gould's a contributor on on ND Explains. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, they were they were voices in the wilderness when they were in Washington in in the Senate in in, in raising the issues about rural America. Right. I mean, we've been the Democrats have been wiped out, and and it's yes, there's the Fox and the Rush Limbaugh uh, effect. There's no question about that. But you take a look at a state like Minnesota. Minnesota, which, you know, DFL, one of the strongest Democratic states, if you didn't have the Twin Cities in Minnesota, Minnesota would be monolithically Republican. Today. Yeah, I mean, aside from Colin between, Peterson. Exactly. Who may not win re-election this yeah. year. It's, it's been interesting, Jason, this week. You had Minnesota, since we broached the subject, had their primary. And you have Michelle Fishbach winning the, the GOP nomination, take on Colin Peterson instantly. It, I mean, the next morning, Wednesday morning of this week, when we're recording this, uh, they put out the polls showing that fish box up, according to their internal polls, 10 points on Colin Peterson. Yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's got an uphill battle. I mean, the 2000, the, the last election wasn't a landslide for him. At the beginning no. of this year, it w- there was wondering, was he even running? Because he wasn't raising any money. Uh, yeah. it, that was gearing up for yeah, But you lose a, a, a Democrat like Colin Peterson in a farm state, in that rural pocket that gets yeah. the issues of where we live, you know, as far as the Democratic Party goes, I mean, it, it, that's, that, it, besides from John Tester in, in Montana, what else do you have as far as who, rural who bar- representation? Who, who, barely, who barely held on, Yeah, you know, in, in, 20, in 2018. Um, we're, uh, well, let's sum it up. We're in a bad place, folks. We're, we're <laughs> in a bad place. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, the, the one of the you know speaking of Democrats uh, and one thing that they're thinking is going to get us out of that bad place obviously is winning the presidential election this week. Joe Biden picks Kamala Harris. Uh, the previous weeks we've talked about the Veep stakes, which if I have to say that term one more time, I'll throw my microphone out a window so you don't ever have to hear it. But it, we don't have to anymore because we know who the vice presidential candidate is going to be, uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, your take on that because I know we had talked about some other mm-hmm. uh, for me and I said this on my KFGO radio show of the geography the 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 it didn't make sense you have california wrapped up 
But I've got to say, when you see that the, their ticket rates $48 million in 48 hours after mm-hmm. the announcement, there's obviously some momentum on their side there. Well, I, you, listeners to this podcast, all three of you, <laughs> we don't know who's listening. Who's the, who's the other one? You and I are two. I have a buddy. I have a buddy. And maybe my brother-in-law. So there's four. Um, be that as it may. Um, well, the we price have, is right. It's free. It's free, folks. It's free. Um, and by the way, if, you, if you've got a business or a product that you want to sell, yeah. contact us today. <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll send you our, our contact information. Our people will get a hold of your people. Absolutely. But, uh, and mailbag too. send us emails. Let us know what you think. We'll read yeah, them at no, the end of the no, show. No, you know what? I want a handwritten note. I want you to put money into the U S postal service because it's under attack right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, let me, let's just be honest. Those that have listened to the show know that I, I said that I thought that Bell Demings was an ideal pick for Biden. I, you know, I was critical of, of Harris. Um, and, and I'm going to show that I am uh, capable here of saying a lot of good things about Harris because just because I may not have picked her doesn't mean she's not a good pick. In fact, I think she's far and away an above average pick as, as we saw this week, the argument that was against her was um, some of the positions she took in the presidential campaign, uh, California, does she come off as coastal elite? Um, You know, is she, you know, when she's good, she's really good. Uh, she is has raw political talent, but when she's bad, as we saw in the political the presidential campaign, she's bad. But let's look at this. She's charismatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're into identity politics, she checks all those boxes. Um, she is Generation X. Um, thank God. Um, she's <laughs> she's she's African American. She's Asian. She's a woman. Um, you know, she she she's law and order. Um, you know, you know that the Republicans are struggling in their attack because on the one hand they're saying that that she is um, too far to the left, and the other time they're attacking her in the same breath, saying that she was too hard as prosecutor. Uh, she plays law and order, but not that much order there, Kamala. Exactly. Uh, she she she's a historic pick, and 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 what you one test of vice presidential running mates is um, for all those qualities that she has, uh, which are all positive qualities, is is when you see the running mates together, and you instantly make two judgments. The first judgment is you look at them and say, you know, whether they look good and comfortable with each other or not. And there's an alchemy there between Biden and Harris. You can tell that. So the chemistry is there. The second thing that you look at right away is, is the vice presidential candidate capable of being president? And in this case, you don't have to squint your eyes and tilt your head to see her sitting, um, you know, as president of the United States in the situation room at the head of the table when the generals are giving her her options. She's ready on day one. Um, so she she was out of all of the finalists, and they did come out last night in the New York Times, that it was Harris, Susan Rice, Elizabeth Warren, and Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, out of all the finalists, she was the one with the fewest downsides. Uh, and, and in doing so, she was the, you know, she fulfilled the Hippocratic oath of, of vice presidential selections, do no harm. In fact, I think she, he probably, she probably helps Biden on the margins in that she excites African-American turnout. She, she plays well in the suburbs. She excites, um, she excites millennials. Uh, they, you know, the money tells a tale, 48 million, $48 million. And 
when you see the two together, uh, they, they do strike you as they're greater than the sum of their parts. So overall, a, a solid pick by Biden, a reassuring pick by Biden. It, it, what's interesting about it, um, in response to it, because, you know, as my KFGO radio, we get a lot of interaction in the afternoons, two to four weekdays. You can tune in there. Uh, there you again, go. There you go, Tyler. You just got to plug that. Got to plug Every that. Every now and then. You can go to ndexplains.com and read more from <laughs> myself and Matthews when he uh, puts in a column, too. Uh, but it, instantly, you know, you open up the phone lines. Tell me, tell me your thoughts on this pick. And, uh, you know, earlier on in this process, we, I had self-identified Republicans that would uh, contact the show and say, Tyler, you know what, if, you, if uh, Joe Biden picks someone like Amy Klobuchar, I would, uh, I'd consider voting for the ticket. And, of course, that didn't happen because of the events that we've talked about with George Floyd and connection of, uh, you know, the history of Amy Klobuchar. She pulled herself out, which, let's be real, I think events were dictating that she wasn't really a viable option at this point or at that point. So when this pick comes in, I kind of ask, you know, all right, so for all of you that were out there saying, well, I'd consider this now, now respond to your take on this pick. And, of, of course, it's, well, no, I've got to vote for Trump now, as though the VP selection was one that really pushed him over. I suspect the uh, – sincerity of their consideration might not have necessarily been there in the first place. Uh, if this was, I, in other words, I think that they were always going to be going home uh, to voting for the Republican side of the ticket. They were looking for an off ramp. Yeah. Yeah. Then that, 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 that's what I think they, they got. But so I go explain to me then if it was this selection, what drove, what is it about Kamala Harris that you're saying, okay, I've got to vote for Trump now, aside from the fact I think you were, you know, give me your reasoning. And overwhelmingly, Brett Kavanaugh, that hearing got brought up again for Republican uh, voters up in the upper Midwest here. Are you surprised by that at all? No, not at all. The way she treated Brett Kavanaugh, that's what, that was the response. She's a prosecutor. She's a prosecutor. I mean, you want to talk about her treatment of Brett Kavanaugh. Okay, let's talk about her treatment of Brett Kavanaugh. And then, the, then the, let's look at the antics of Lindsey Graham <laughs> in, that, in that hearing. Yeah, that yeah, hearing was yeah. a shit show. Oh, it was terrible. It was absolutely uh, just, just uh, the, the worst. Well, I, I, I can't say this now, but it was at that time one of the worst displays of uh, – yeah, of discourse, dialogue, you know, you have the most deliberative body, uh, <laughs> it, you know, and, and, and it turns into, you know, a, a WWE, uh, yeah. you know, segment in between the matches that come up is what it, what it turned into, but there's still, a, but here's, you know, so I think about that because uh, yeah, I gotta I mean, say this, I gotta say this though, uh, you, right. you, you hit a nerve here with Kavanaugh because how pathetic is it in that Kavanaugh hearing here? And this is what really stood out to me. Uh, regardless of whether you believe the allegations or not, the spectacle, the sight mm -hmm. of the the Republican senators that in order to question uh, the woman, what was it, Blasey Ford, I believe was her name, they had to have a woman do the questioning. And they sat there in absolute silence while the woman is doing the questioning. I mean, these are grown ass men that were hiding behind um, a woman that they put in front of the dais. They had her sitting down to do to do the question. It was pathetic. And then the minute Kavanaugh comes out there and, and Harris and Klobuchar and Chris Kuhn start asking some pointed questions, Lindsey Graham throws a temper tantrum right. and the dam breaks. And that and the woman that they had hired, the, the, the female uh, legal counsel that they had hired to ask questions was never heard from again. again. Yeah. yeah no, I think that that's, uh, that's smart to bring that up. And if we're going to talk about the way people 
treat others. I mean, we could just look at the White House and how uh, the, the president has treated women or treated people with disabilities. I mean, if you're going to be saying, well, you know, what really turned me off was the treatment that uh, Kamala Harris had towards Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, that that's a slippery slope in of itself. Yeah. If we're going to start bringing that, the attitude and treatment of others up. So if Kamala Harris were a man and, and she had questioned Brett Kavanaugh the way she did, they would be talking about how effective an inquisitor she is mm-hmm. and and how tough she is. But when a woman does that, let's just be honest about it. She comes off or is called a bitch. Oh. You know, I mean, that's that's the double that's the double standard here. You know, the thing about Harris here and then and, and let's just come right out and say it. I mean, if, if she if she gets um, if, if Biden and her are successful in November, or December, <laughs> uh, uh, whenever they get done counting the votes. Um, when, if, if, and when she becomes vice president, you know she stands a, a better chance than her predecessors of actually becoming the president in the next four years, right. because of Biden's age. Uh, and and you have to say this whether you like her or not that she has that one quality that all of the female leaders in the Western world have had uh, successful female leaders, and that is toughness. The, whether it was Margaret Thatcher, Golda Meir, or Angela Merkel now, or Jacinda Allren down in, in New Zealand, that the toughness, um, the ta- you know, let's just be honest, I'm not going to take your shit. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, a little levity here. I want, I want to tell this quick story. Um, the Munich massacre in 1972. With the Israeli Boy, that Wars. sounds really lovely. Let's lighten the mood by talking about okay. a massacre. <laughs> yeah, terrible segue here. <laughs> so the Munich, the Munich massacre of 1972. Oh, All right, we're, popcorn, get, we're gonna tell Spinell. Let's pull it back. <laughs> so the 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 Olympic team was 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 killed. And Golda Meir is the prime minister of Israel. And this happens, in the, you know, during the night, she summons uh, her cabinet. They're all men. And she summons her intelligence chiefs and she summons her generals. And she is sitting at the head of the table. And they are laying out all the evidence, everything that happened. And she is smoking her cigarette. And she's listening and they're debating amongst themselves. And she's saying nothing. They're debating amongst themselves what they're going to do, how they're going to, how they're going to get them. She takes her cigarette as the story goes from multiple men in the room. She pushes, you know, she, she, you know, crushes out her cigarette in the ashtray. She looks at him as the smoke is coming out of her mouth and says, gentlemen, in this gravelly voice, she said, this is not open for debate. We find every one of these bastards and we kill them. There'll be no trial. We kill them. If it takes us 50 years, we'll find these bastards and we'll hunt them down like the animals they are. That's an order. Now get to work on getting them. Got up and she left. One of the generals in the room that night said, you had 25 men at the table and the woman was the one with the balls. There's the levity part I was waiting for. There's the levity part. Like, there's yeah. the levity part. Still, I'm like, this still seems pretty dark. But okay, there's the levity part. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and there, here's, here's the last thing I'll say about Kamala Harris and the response. It's not about her. It's about the response to uh, yeah. that selection from uh, people in, in the upper Midwest. I mean, let's be real. That's where people are, are listening to this at. Uh, is the, the, so first it was the Brett Kavanaugh. 
uh, situation. But then it was, well, you know, don't you think it's wrong, Tyler, that uh, Joe Biden basically discriminated against all these other options when he said it's got to be a woman. And then ultimately it had to be, you know, uh, basically an African-American or or a minority as though like that insulted all the male listeners that are some white dudes listening to us in their farm shops right now across the upper middle. So that's the other thing that really stuck it to them uh, this week in this decision. And I just cannot take that argument serious. No, I, I mean, I, I said, I think it may have been last week that I thought that, that Biden sh- should be commended for wanting to pick a woman. I think that, it, you know, I'm not a fan of candidates making pledges. And yeah. it may have been better off had he just said, not know, said, said nothing, said right. not said anything and just came out and said, here's, here's Kamala Harris. The remarkable thing about Harris, though, uh, about the Harris pick is that it is um, both a conventional pick and a history-making pick. You know, when the first time that that I was on your show or in this podcast, and, we were, and the and the Veep stakes came up, we talked about who who was Biden going to pick, and I said, and you 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 said it as well. It's most likely going to be Harris. It's mm-hmm. most likely. I mean, I mean, she she checked all the boxes, and then here he manages to come out, and at the same time, not only you know with her selection, it just it just. It was just the, the history of it. And this is, this is the, the demography here, okay? The demography here is, is that there are going to be a lot more Kamala Harris's in American politics coming forward than there are going to be Joe Biden's because of the changing complex, or, uh, composition of, of the electorate and the population in the United States. Um, and so she is you know, the, the face of the future. Now, the question is, from a political standpoint, um, the polls show that, that she's, she's enhanced a little bit. You know, he's gone up maybe a point or two nationally. You have to look at the battleground state polls to see, to see where the effect is. National polls are, are essentially meaningless at this point in time. So you have to see what happens there in the states. But what happens to Mike Pence? Because we've got the Democratic convention next week, and then the following week we have the Republican convention. Um, does does Donald Trump say, you know, thanks, Mike, but I've got to go with Nikki Haley here? Yeah. Uh, okay. Give me give me your percentage of if you think that's actually going to happen. I'd have to say, uh, I don't know, I, a coin flip for me right now. Oh, I, I would say it's less than less yeah. than less than that. I, I think I think it's just going to be really hard to dump to dump Mike Pence. Uh, you're going to piss off all the evangelicals. Now you can say, well, the evangelicals are going to stick with Trump regardless. But I, I just think it's going to be very difficult. It's just going to reek of, of, of desperation. But but you know, hold on a second. Reek of desperation. We're talking about this guy sabotaging the United States yeah, Postal yeah. Service. And we're going to worry about the desperation of a VP shakeup. <laughs> you know, I, and, 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 you know, what's going to happen here? I mean, let's go back to the post office for a minute. So bottom line on 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 Harris Solid pick. Biden did just fine. A plus on the rollout. Um, but but when you get to the postal service, uh, and you get to that, is the question is, you're sitting in the middle of August. The attention is on this right now. At where does this go? Is this going to be? Are we still going to be talking about this a week from now, a two weeks from now? Because that's that's the that's the ultimate test here. The five alarm fire is 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 taking place right now. Is this just another thing we're just going to shrug our shoulders at and, oh, well, that's another norm that, that's going by the wayside? 
or are people going to go into the streets here? Are people going to march? Are people going to, because the vote, the vote is sacrosanct in this country. And it started with white property owning males. And the story of America has been that push for suffrage that put with the 15th amendment in the aftermath of the civil war, the 19th amendment, which by the way, we're, we're approaching the 100th anniversary next week of the 19th amendment, which gave women the right to vote. You know, are we just going to, are people just going to willingly just shrug their shoulders and say, this is going to happen. And you know, well, we're just going to have to make do or are people going to go to the streets. I don't know which way this goes. I think that is a coin flip. Yeah, no, uh, you, you're probably right. Cause I know that there's people that are listening right now that, yeah, you know what? Uh, why not have the voter ID? Why not do it? You know, all those steps to make it harder instead of more accessible. It, it, there's that population out there that are now also pointing out, well, you know, it did take a little while for me to get the newspaper in the mail. The delivery has been Where's my I mean, medicine. The, the, Where's the, my check? Yeah, the justification of the moves are already being laid down by people that are already going to be climbing over each other to vote, uh, you know, for, for reelection. So yeah, it, it's bad politics. Terrible politics. It's, it's terrible politics. Uh, it, it can backfire on the Republicans. And if you, because Republicans, you know, you, you talk about Kevin Kramer, um, you know, Kevin Kramer, when he was um, chairman of the Republican party, um, really developed back in the early nineties, the entire mechanism that the Republicans used to get out there and get that, that mail in that, that absentee vote. And, and he votes by mail. All these senators vote by mail. Of course they do. And yet they've got the audacity to try to paint it as well. It's not really reliable. And if you want to, I know. And then, and then you you look at the, the numbers that came out today, there was a navigator poll on Friday that came out that shows that nationally Biden leads Trump by 10 points. I think it was 50, 52, 42 was what the poll said. Um, but among those voters that plan to use mail-in ballots, Biden leads by 50 percentage points, yeah. 72 to 22%. Among those who plan to vote in person on election day, by, uh, Trump leads 55, 31. And those who are going to vote early, Trump leads by only four points, 49, 45. So it's not complicated what he's doing here. And, and this, is, this, is the, this is the roadmap here. What happens is Trump is hoping that he wins the votes on election day. Yeah. So, so on election night, he can say, I'm, on the, I'm leading in all the battleground states. He comes out there, he declares victory. And then they start counting the votes uh, at, on, on late Tuesday night, into into the next few days and biden takes lead and then what you have is and this has come out the trump campaign the republican national committee they've all developed the legal strategy where they're going to challenge they're going to have we're going to look at about a half dozen floridas like in 2000 where they're going to challenge and they're going to drag this thing out in the courts that's that's the strategy. There's not going to be the acceptance of the election results if it doesn't go Trump's way. There's not going to be the peaceful transfer of power. If he loses, he's not going to be at Joe Biden's inauguration. That that's now fallen by the wayside. There's not going to be any celebrate, you know, con- congratulatory call. All of these democratic norms are not written down. If you look at the Constitution, one of the things in the Constitution was what it was at its beauty and its fatal flaw in that the framers left a lot to interpretation. They put a lot of faith in the Congress to get it right. They put a lot of faith in in the people to get it right. But we haven't had a situation 
where we've had this extent of tribalism in this country since before the Civil War, and that that tribalism is magnified every goddamn night on primetime television, whether you watch MSNBC or Fox News. With that... Time's up, Jason. Been a lot to unpack. And boy, you know what? I hope you are having a stiff drink when you're listening to this because it hasn't been a, a cheerful conversation. Even the levity part of this podcast was a bit <laughs> I gotta work. I got to work on my sense of humor, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let me tell you a joke. Start with a massacre. Jeez. Good grief, man. Jason, as always, I appreciate you wrapping up some of these things. Uh, hey, thanks, buddy. We'll, we'll do it again next week, all right? For all, you, for all you listening out there, you take care. I will recap what the hell happened again next week.